For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and they were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are on the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the others will be left. Other will be left. There'll be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Verse 36 is bracketed in the NASB. Some question about whether it's actually in the original manuscripts. We certainly know that it's at least in the account in Matthew, which is not a parallel, but there are similar teachings here. Now, this is a different occasion when Jesus is giving this teaching than we find in Matthew 24. But verse 36, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures, or some translations have eagles, will be gathered. Well, again, much is in the scriptures here in the New Testament, particularly in the teachings of Jesus regarding the, the kingdom of God. And much has been written by commentators and theologians regarding the kingdom of God as well. You can find books on the kingdom of God articulating the scriptural references that are and explaining what the kingdom of God is all about. And to be honest about it, there's, there's some disagreement about what exactly is entailed with this message of the kingdom of God. It is a matter that we have considered in our study of Luke. For those of you who have been tracking with us here for a couple of years now, a couple of years now through Luke's gospel, we're going to take a few minutes here just to do a brief review. So those of you who've been here for that length of time and we've talked about the kingdom of God, I want to very briefly review a few matters that we find not only in Luke's gospel, but also in the New Testament that pertain to the kingdom of God. Well, first of all, we find in Matthew's gospel, when he records the, the 
initial message of John the Baptist. It is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he follows that with the message of Jesus in Matthew chapter four, verse 17. When Jesus begins his preaching ministry, the words that Matthew places on the lips again are repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So at the very beginning of Jesus preaching and teaching ministry, there is this theme, this emphasis, and this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which there is no distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven that is on the lips and in the teaching of our Lord Himself. Then we look through very quickly through portions of Luke. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus there... As he is being asked to to stay there, he says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. The assumption being, this is what he is doing. I am preaching the kingdom of God where I go. I have the task, I have the responsibility to go and to preach the kingdom of God into other cities as well. So that is the message that Jesus is proclaiming. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. There it is again. This is the message of Jesus, proclaiming and teaching, preaching the message of the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9. When he sends the twelve out, he sent them out to proclaim what? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. In obedience to that, what do they do? Verse, 30, uh, verse 6 tells us. Departing, they began going throughout the villages preaching what? The gospel. So the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom of God is the message of the gospel. When they walked and went out in obedience to Jesus' command to proclaim, to preach the kingdom of God, they did so by preaching the gospel, the message of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see in Luke chapter 9, verse 11, the crowds were aware of this and followed Him and welcomed and welcoming them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So once again, the emphasis of the kingdom of God in Jesus' own teaching. Then we've, we've referenced also in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven with his disciples, he is speaking. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning what? Concerning the kingdom of God. So even after Jesus has died, He has raised again, He is preparing to his to go to His heavenly ascent, He is speaking to His disciples of the kingdom of God. And then we see all the way over in Acts chapter 28. And this is not exhaustive. This is just a very brief 
review of this theme, of this idea throughout the New Testament scriptures. And this will be our last reference here. Acts chapter 28, verse 23. Here, Paul. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. Here it is again. Explain to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And then in verse 31, the very last verse of the book of Acts. Back up to verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, was welcoming all who came to him. What's he doing? He is preaching the kingdom of God. And teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So we have to acknowledge that this theme, this idea of the kingdom of God is a theme that is dominant in the teaching of Jesus. It is a theme that continues through his teaching even when he's ascending into heaven. The last thing it says, according to Luke, he is doing, he is teaching about the kingdom of God. And then the work of Paul. It recorded at the very end of Acts, and not just there, but other places as well, is that of testifying and preaching about the kingdom of God. So very clearly, it's an emphasized theme of Jesus' ministry. Hence, it is a reality that we need to consider. Now, when we think of the kingdom of God, <clears throat> there are two aspects to consider. And it's revealed in the title of my message. And I, and I retitled the message deliberately. It is the present. And it is the promised kingdom. It is the present kingdom. The kingdom of God here now. But it is also recognizing that it has not come yet in its fullness. That it is still a promised kingdom. It is a kingdom that has come. It is a kingdom that is Coming. It is a kingdom that is present. It is a kingdom that is promised. So we think of the kingdom of God. We must think of it in those terms. In terms of what some theologians have described it as the, the already and the not yet. The tension of living with that which has already come. That which is already clear, clearly indicated the kingdom of God has come. But also the not yet. There are things that are yet to come when Christ returns, when the kingdom of God comes in its consummation. So we, we see it in, in these twin aspects here. And so we want to think about from our text this morning of the kingdom of God. We want to be careful that we speak of the kingdom of God as the scripture reveals it. So that we're not left to mere speculation. We're not left to guesswork. But there at scripture and our text here today. What is revealed to us in this text regarding the kingdom of God. So the first thing we want to consider is the commencement. The commencement or the beginning of God's kingdom. And I say beginning and even saying that. We need to understand that in one sense. That the kingdom of God was initiated before Christ came. There was, a sense, there was a sense and there was a kingdom of God as long as there has been God redeeming His people, even throughout the Old Testament. That we can say that there was a kingdom of God in the Old Testament simply because there was a people of God. 
But there is the, the special sense of the kingdom of God beginning, the kingdom of God that was anticipated, the kingdom of God that was prophesied in the Old Testament as coming at a later time and was commenced, which began with Jesus first coming. Now the Pharisees question verse 20. It doesn't articulate the question per se, but the essence of the question is in verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. That's the question of the Pharisees. They lived with an expectation of a fuller experience and manifestation of the kingdom of God than they were experiencing or they had to be experienced through the Old Testament. Something different is going to transpire. And it will be this everlasting kingdom. It will be the kingdom that is set up, that is established by the promised Messiah. And so they come to Jesus, and we don't know the spirit in which they've come. But the question has been, when is the kingdom of God coming? Now, we don't need to read into this question that the, the Pharisees were looking for a specific date or a time. Now, we are, when we think of those terms, we think of, well, when is this going to happen? We begin to think chronologically. Well, give me, a, give me a day. Give me a time. When's the kingdom of God coming? When can we look for it? That's not what they have in mind here. What really seems to be conveyed by this question is, what are the visible signs? What are the tangible proofs that we can examine to determine that the kingdom of God truly has come? So Jesus' response that he gives here in the last part of verse 20 and verse 21. says, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look here or there. For, behold, same word, for, for look. (laughs) The kingdom of God is in your midst. So Jesus' response here in verses 20 and 21 revealed to us this very key aspect of the kingdom of God, and that is this, that the kingdom as it is coming is spiritual in nature. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is not coming with signs to be observed. There aren't going to be the physical manifestations in an ordinary sense of the word. Not what you would expect when you see a kingdom coming and being established with a with a perhaps a king coming in all of his pomp and all of his royalty and a military parade preceding him. Says all this is not going to be part of the coming kingdom of God. Don't look for those things. Don't look for someone to come riding into the city of Jerusalem on a white horse and to be the great deliverer of the, of the people of Israel. It's not coming that way. It's not coming with visible signs. It's not coming with signs to be observed in that sense. And nor when the kingdom of God will they say, look, it's here, or look, it's there. It's not a, it's not a kingdom that is identified geographically. And Jesus says this about the kingdom. Rather, it is in your midst. Now, the translation, different modern translations use, translate this wording differently. And NASB uses the terminology, in your midst, which is sufficiently vague enough <laughs> that it could mean either within you 
that the kingdom of God is that which is within you, or it could be the kingdom of God is that which is among you. And the Greek can be translated either way. And so the NASB has taken the in your midst, which is kind of vague. You can look at it and say, well, it could be within, it could be among, among you. Then there's another possibility, and that is that there are some elements of both. And I've not completely dismissed that. That there are elements of both. And it wouldn't be the first time that Jesus teaches such. For example, when Jesus says to Nicodemus that you must be born, our translations say you must be born again. The word can be just as easily translated born from above. So, which is it? You must be born from above or you must be born again a second time. Which is it? I think elements are both of their intended. And you go through the Gospel of John, you see just a, a slew of these of these double meanings of things. And so I've not completely dismissed it, even in this text here, that there is the idea that within or among is implied in both. The dominant interpretation, which I am inclined to, the dominant interpretation is the idea of being within you. That the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, this kingdom of God is an internal matter. And then when Jesus is even says here, some believe that we can't be saying in you because he's speaking to Pharisees. And he's certainly not saying it's in them. And I say, well, of course not. But he's using the word the pronoun you just like we would in a very generic sense, not a specific sense. So it's not implying that the kingdom of God is in you, Pharisees. <laughs> he's just saying the kingdom of God is in you. It's inside people. And we do the same thing in our language today. But anyway, it is an issue of the heart and the within you is a, it's a translation that is favored by the context of those who are looking for visible external proofs. Give me something I can see. And Jesus said, it's not coming that way. It's not something that you can see with the human eyes. The kingdom of God is not coming that way. It is internal. It is spiritual. It is invisible. And so the point is that the coming of God's kingdom will not be seen in visible elements as the Pharisees had anticipated, as they were expecting and in fact, according to some of the things that Jesus said, you get the very clear idea that his implication is the kingdom of God has in fact come when he is there. Luke chapter 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And what? Everyone is now forcing his way into it. Into what? Into the kingdom of God. Now. So there in verse 16 of chapter 16. There was the preaching of the law and the prophets. Until John. John the Baptist came. But since then. The gospel of the kingdom of God is preached. And people are forcing their way into this kingdom of God. Now. They're pursuing the kingdom. Pursuing entry into the kingdom of God. So very clearly understanding. As Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God. It was there now. In his day. So we must keep the spiritual nature. Of God's kingdom before us. 
that it's not so much a visible and and visible and physical manifestation that one should look for. Now, one of the scare tactics that's being used against the evangelical church by by outsiders and by critics is that one of the goals of of the evangelical church, and especially as uh, many many believers, many church groups are involved in politics, there's the fear tactic that's being advanced by the enemies is that the goal of the the right-wing conspirators is to establish a theocracy. That that's the real goal of of the right-wing fundamental Christians. And I use that term, that, that includes all of us. Okay? That's the goal. They want to establish a theocracy here. And I have to admit that there are some Christians who hold such a theological bent. I do not. That the church should exert its influence and and in fact the church should be established in some form of of a ruling capacity. And historically such attempts have been disastrous. We do believe that the laws that are based upon God's moral law are right and they are good and they are and they are in fact demanded upon all men. We understand that. However, we recognize that God's kingdom, the kingdom of God is advanced in the hearts of men and women by spiritual regeneration, by conversion, not by laws that bring at best outward compliance to God's law. So it doesn't do any good in the long term to try to establish a theocracy, if you will, because if the hearts of men and women are not changed, you've got a corrupt, if it's a church, you've got a corrupted church. Because men and women are not brought into the church, they're not brought into the kingdom of God by becoming a church member, by, by yielding to the rules or the commandments of God as revealed in the scripture. That's not the case at all. That men and women are brought into the kingdom of God by regeneration. There must be a change of heart. A change of the essence of what an individual is. But the danger comes much closer to the church than that. Most of us aren't too concerned about whether or not theocracy is going to be set up. Now there's a much closer danger that we need to be concerned about today. And that is individuals and groups that take up the religious exterior... And the forms of Christianity because that's the circle they've either been raised in or it's the circle they've become comfortable in. And that reflects their, their moral standards, reflects their life. But they've never been converted. They've never experienced a conversion by the Spirit of God in their hearts. That's the danger that we must be aware of. What is the signs Of the kingdom of God coming for us in our day. You ask that question of many people and you get a response something like this. Not so much in words but in practice. What is the signs of God's kingdom coming in our day? What is the sign of God's kingdom coming into your life? And it's something like this. You walk an aisle. You shake a hand. You hear a brief gospel presentation. You pray a sinner's prayer. You trust God at His Word. You don't call God a liar. 
So you believe that you are a child of God because you've walked the aisle, you've heard the gospel, you pray the sinner's prayer, you've been baptized, and you live carnally or spiritually, whichever you prefer. If you get serious, you're a spiritual Christian. If you don't get serious, you're a carnal Christian. See, that's the evidence of the kingdom of God coming in the mentality of many people in our day. So the result is that we have churches that are filled with anesthetized unbelievers. And the problem is we have this faulty methodology that's been advanced throughout evangelical churches We've reduced becoming a Christian to a methodology, to a form, to a procedure. And you do all these things. And somehow or another, the assumption is, the assumption is that God must convert in that. What are the signs of God's kingdom coming for us in our day? the same as it's always been. There's a conviction of sin. There's an awareness of one's brokenness, of one's emptiness before God is unfitness to be in the kingdom of God. And there is the embracing of the Jesus, of Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, as their provision for their sin. There is the fruit that Paul speaks of through his New Testament epistles of faith and of hope and of love. Those are things that Paul appeals to, isn't it? As I hear of your faith and the hope that you demonstrate, the expectation that you demonstrate, and the love that you show. It's a life that's living for the glory of God. That is the sign of the kingdom of God coming in the heart and the life of an individual. Romans fourteen seventeen. there Paul says that the kingdom of God is this. It is righteousness, it is peace, and it is joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. And we have taken it upon ourselves to build the kingdom of God our way. And we've succeeded at building something, but it is not the kingdom of God. When God's kingdom come, it is a, comes, it is a spiritual work. And let's be careful. Let's be careful that we do not fall into the traps of, of equating <clears throat> not only a religious, moral, decent lifestyle and vocabulary that is so appropriate, but let's be careful that we do not confuse theological understanding of truths as conversion. Be careful, those of us Reformed Calvinists, that we don't make the mistake of thinking that there'll be no Calvinist in hell. Because there will be. Because the issue is not what you've got up here. The issue is what has happened in your heart. Has there been a transformation of life? Have you been born again? Has there been a spiritual work 
A work that's invisible when it takes place, but it does have the visible fruit of faith, hope, and love, and righteousness, and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's the kingdom of God. So that's the commencement of God's kingdom. When it came then, it was an invisible thing. It was something that, that was taking place in the hearts of men and women. Jesus said, people are storming into the kingdom of God. It's time. The kingdom of God is here now. kingdom of God is just entered today. Is it still? And that's what we pray, isn't it? Isn't that the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer? Your kingdom come? We're still praying that, aren't we? We're still praying that the kingdom of God would come into the lives and the hearts of men and women. And we're praying for that ultimate coming of the kingdom of God. When Christ will rule with all authority and all of His enemies will be crushed. There will be no more sin. Leads us to the second, second truth revealed, and that is the consummation of God's kingdom. The promised kingdom. And here in verse 22, the discussion moves to the disciples. It says here in verse 22, he said to his disciples. So he's changing venues here. He's gone at one point, he had been answering the question of the Pharisees moves to this discussion of the kingdom with his disciples and also with this with this change of venues there's the change of an emphasis here and that is he begins here to speak of these these future elements there's much here that's written in the future tense things about when the kingdom of god that has come in christ but about the kingdom of god that will come when Christ returns in His glory. What are some characteristics of this kingdom as it is consummated? First of all, he says that there is an unfulfilled desire for a divine day of power. Verse 22. He said to the disciples, The day will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So in other words, before the kingdom of God comes in its consummation, there will be a, a longing among the people of God that Christ come. The delay has been too long. The sufferings, the trials have become too intense. Lord, please come. And so there is the longing that is expressed there. You long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, one of the days of, of the Son of Man coming in power to show that Christ is in fact victorious. Because don't you get the idea on occasions? I mean, wouldn't it be easy on occasions to look in the world as we see it to say, Christ is not winning. If you just look at things from a human perspective. And in our own lives, our own experience to... To have those days of trials and hardships and difficulties come to say, Lord, you're not winning here. And so there's that longing, he says, longing for one of the days of the Son of Man. Just, just something of a measure of the revealing of the power of Christ. Longing in the hearts of his people for that day. And there will be delayed, according to Jesus here. The longing will precede the actual coming. Another thing he tells the characteristic is that there is a universal recognition once this kingdom comes. There is a universal recognition of the fact that the kingdom has come. Verse 23. 
They will say, they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away. Do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. What's he saying here? He said, listen, there are going to be people who are going to say to you, the kingdom of God has come. Christ has come. We've heard that, haven't we? We've heard that in our days. Jesus says, don't go there. Don't go after them looking to see, well, maybe the kingdom of God, maybe Christ has come here. We need to see what's going on over here. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't go after them because when I come on the day of the Son of Man, verse 24, it's going to be like lightning when it flashes in one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky. There will be no question. There won't be any questions. Has the kingdom of God come? Everyone is going to be able to say, yes, Christ has come. It's going to be a worldwide, universal event. Everyone sees it. Everyone knows it. So there will be no uncertainty. No no questions in the minds of anyone. Another characteristic is that there is this unexpected retribution and judgment. Unexpected retribution and judgment in the day of the Son of Man. Verse 26 and following. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. He goes on to describe their activities. And then verse 28, happened in the days of Lot, all they were doing. So first he cites these historical parallels. There is the day of Noah, the days of Noah, verse 26. And then there are the days of of Lot, verses 28 and following. And what do we see going on here? We see simply this. Life going on. Ordinary, everyday living of life. What are they doing? Well, they're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're being given in marriage. All the things that we do in life. This is just normal human activity. And then, see, what's going on in there in the days of Lot? Verse 28. They're eating, they're drinking, they're buying, they're selling, they're planting, they're building. What is it? It's just life as it goes on in this earth. But then, there is this sudden, unexpected judgment. Verse 27. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. And then in verse 29. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Well, was that supposed to be a picture of something? Yes, it is. These are, in fact, Old Testament types that are, that are given to us to reveal something that's coming. And that is this, what Jesus says, verse 30. It'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Get this in your mind. Get this in your mind. Get this picture in your head of how things were going in the days of Noah. The world living as the world lives. Going on. Doing what the world does. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Buying, selling in the days of Lot. 
and suddenly it all ends. It's unexpected. It's sudden. And Jesus says, get this picture in your mind. On the day of the Son of Man, life is going to be just ordinary. People are going to be buying and selling and eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And all of a sudden, most unexpectedly, it's going to end. It's over. Just the same way as it was in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. There's not going to be no tremors. Animals are acting funny today. I wonder if something's going to happen. No. Ordinary. People just going about life as they've done day after day after day after day. And one of these days it's going to be the end. That's the picture that he gives to us. <clears throat> his promise on verse 30 is it's same on his day that the Son of Man is revealed. There will be no time on that occasion to grasp earthly treasures, verses 31 and 32. On that day, the one who's on the housetop, whose goods are in the house, must not go down to take that. You're not going to have time to. But the point is this. If your heart and your affections are on the things in this earth, you're, not, you're going to lose it. You're not going back to it. And the one who's out in his field, he can't go back into his home and go back and try to, to get things. And if you're tempted to do that, you're tempted to think, I want to, I want to try to, to hold on to what I've got. He says this, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. What'd she do? She wanted the best of both worlds, didn't she? Yeah, get me out of what's coming, but I'd like to take a little bit with me. There's no time to grasp earthly treasures. There's no opportunity for a change of heart. Verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. If you've lived your life in a way that your attempt is, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to hold on to my life. I'm going to make the most of my life for myself. What I want it to be. He says, if you've tried to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But on the other hand, if you've lost your life, you've been willing to say... My life is a mess. I need God. I need Jesus Christ. Willing to lose your life and following after Him. Giving ownership and rule of your life to Him. He says if you lose your life, then you find it. You keep it. But once He comes, there is no changing of heart. No changing of mind. No comfort in companionship. Verse 34 and following. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women grind at the same place. One taken, the other left. What's the difference? Some ready, some are not. Some have chosen to keep their life and hereby lose it. And some have chosen by the grace of God to lose their life and hence preserve it. Two in the field, one taken, the other left. And that there is no error in the application of this judgment. Verse 37. The disciples here say, where, Lord, where is this, where is this judgment going to take place? 
Where's this type of thing going to be going on? And Jesus gives a proverbial answer. Where the body is, there also the vultures or the eagles, scavenger bird, will be gathered. It's a proverbial language here to state simply this. That such a judgment will be passed where such judgment is rightly due. There'll be no mistakes. Where will there be such a such a sudden and, a, in fact, an alarming and a terrifying judgment upon men? And the answer is this. It will be where it is rightly due that Christ will come and render His holy justice and His judgments according to what is righteous and perfect. So where it is due, it will come down. Simply put, there is a consummation of God's kingdom. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of Christ's return. It is the day when the hope of the church, <coughs> and the church being the bride of Christ, the hope of the church will be fulfilled. Those who this day would mock at the church, mock at believers and say, well, where is the promise of His coming? We've been hearing this for 2,000 years, folks. It will be fulfilled. Christ will return. So how does one prepare for such a day? Which brings us to our third consideration this morning. (coughs) Excuse me. That is the conferring, the bestowing of God's kingdom. How is this kingdom of God bestowed or given to people? How do people get in this kingdom? The answer, simply put, is this. In and through Jesus Christ. So how do you prepare for this day of consummation? Through Christ. In Christ. We come to the person of Christ. And again, just in our text here, as we've... (coughs) (coughs) As we've seen, when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is, verse 21, in your midst. Excuse me. It is that which is within you. It is that which is spiritual. But when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he very clearly very clearly indicates that he is speaking (coughs) of his coming, of his fulfillment in himself. That there is no separation of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. He refers to, in our text here, the verse 22, for example. See, one of the days of the Son of Man... Verse 24, so will the Son of Man be in His day. Verse 26, in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 30, it will be just the same as the day in the Son of Man is revealed. What's He speaking about here? Well, it's the designation that Jesus uses for Himself. He speaks of Himself as the Son of Man. We saw back in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, when the would-be followers, I would follow after you, Jesus. Jesus said, <clears throat> the foxes have holes, birds there have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay His head. 
So when Jesus speaks of this kingdom of God and he speaks of the day of the Son of Man, make it very clear in your mind, he is speaking of himself. He is speaking of his kingdom. He is speaking of his day. He is speaking of the day when he will come so that if there is to be any entry into the kingdom of God, it is in and through the person of Jesus Christ. (coughs) He speaks of his glorious return where he returns in his role as a judge of all men. And that that terminology, son of man, has in it an element of a judge coming. Coming. Excuse me. So it's in the person of Christ, but also in the work of Christ. A person comes into the kingdom of God through Christ, no doubt, but only because a work that Christ has done. Verse 25. He speaks of this consummation of this kingdom when it's coming. In verse 25, he changes gear, doesn't he? He says, but first, but first he who the son of man. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. You see, there is this great day of Christ's return when he comes in in his kingdom with all of its glory. It will be the consummation of his kingdom. But before the day of his glory is coming, he must complete his redemptive work. He must receive the judgment of God due upon the sinners, his people, upon himself. <coughs> so he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. <clears throat> now one need not anticipate because of what he says here. One need not anticipate this day of consummation when the kingdom of God comes in its full glory. Need not anticipate that with a sense of hopelessness. Outside Christ, you should have a sense of hopelessness. But our hope is, the reality is that Jesus Christ has paid the just penalty for our sins in his death he has suffered it was not a death by for an example it was not a death just to show the unrighteousness of men it was a death to pay the penalty for men's sins committed against god that's the purpose of his death and he's paid that penalty for our sins and he lives we might walk in newness of life to live a life free from the weight of guilt and from the penalty and the power of sin. So the way into God's kingdom, the way into God's favor is to come to Jesus Christ. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare for that day when he comes? You prepare by entry now. Coming to Christ. Repentance and faith. And I realize that... <clears throat> In my dealing with this text and, and in my dealing with, if I were to deal with Matthew 24 and following, it doesn't have all of the uh, exciting pictures and ideas that are conveyed by many people in there as they understand the day of Christ is coming. I think it's pretty clear cut here. It's pretty simple. But it is a day to... to to reckon with because it is a day of reckoning.
And God's kingdom is conferred to its members by coming to Jesus Christ. So has God's kingdom, first of all, come in you? Have you been born again? Has there been a work of the Spirit of God in you? Not what have you done. What has God done? And are you ready for this consummation of His kingdom? When Christ returns, when the kingdom of God comes in its full-blown glory, are you ready for that? And is your hope of participation in His kingdom, Jesus Christ, alone? Is that your hope? His merits, His work, His grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are, in fact, advancing your kingdom. And we see the reality of that in the world in which we live. You're building your church. And Lord, we do live with a longing, with an anticipation of that day when when your kingdom will come in its full glory. When Christ returns, his enemies are crushed. Lord, until that day, I ask, O God, that you would meet us. I pray that today that the assurance that any have in this place today of, of heaven and of eternity would be rightly placed upon the merits and the works of Christ. If there be any here that are deceived, Lord, open eyes. There are any here that are looking and trusting in what they have done, a profession they have made, a position they may hold, the activities they may perform, rather than the all-sufficient works of Christ. I ask, O oh God, for you to lay that bare before us. <clears throat> These things we pray in Jesus' name.